Hi, this is Trina with Parenting for Liberation. I'm here with Neil Irving, Executive Director of Men Can Stop Rape. Neil, thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. So could you introduce yourself a little bit about your work background and also like your family and like parenting story? Like let's let's hear a little bit about Neil. Sure. So I love to tell a lot of the young people that I work with that, you know, I'm a a square from the suburbs. You know, I I grew up in in a very traditional home, um, two-parent household. My parents still live in the house that I grew up in. Uh, the suburbs of Washington, D.C., and uh, in Silver Spring, Maryland. And um, they've, been to, they've been married almost 60 years now. Uh, parents are in their 80s. And I guess the thing that I would lift up about my childhood, most of all that transitions into my work, is that um, as a child, I was always safe. Um, I didn't know that's what it was, but as I think about the work I do professionally now with young people, um, my parents created an environment uh, for my brother, sister, and I, that was always safe. Um, we always felt cared for. And 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 frankly, um, even though we were kind of probably middle class, and most Americans think they're middle class, we were, I always felt rich. Um, we didn't want for anything. I was not looking, you know, where my next meal was coming from. I had gone to, you know, went to private school when through first through eighth grade. I went to public school during high school, went to junior college, and then to the University of Maryland. Um, so um, I had a very you know, uneventful, very non-traumatic uh, uh, upbringing, uh, again, because my parents made me safe. And um, as I started working with young people, it started um, coaching rec youth sports, um, started coaching middle school boys in basketball at the same time I was in college. It was just something I liked to do. I was still playing rec league basketball myself and just something that I did. And then that transferred into being a summer camp counselor and then director of after-school centers. And by the time I thought that I was, you know, really clear about how I wanted and what I wanted to do professionally, I thought I was going to become a psychologist. And I thought I was going to study sports psychology specifically, and it was an emerging field at the time, and I was, you know, a big sports fan. And then I had an opportunity to get a job through one of my uh, courses for field placement at the Regional Institute for Children and Adolescents, which is a residential treatment facility for severely emotionally disturbed youth. It's uh, run by the state of Maryland's Department of Health and Mental Hygiene. And I would say that that environment for the eight years I was there became, you know, the most central, impactful, transformational experience I had in how I learned to work with young people. And again, these were young people who you see in your, in your, you know, your mall, in your neighborhood, you know, there's nothing unique about them other than they're duly diagnosed, psychotropic meds. Um, our placement was the last placement before a hospitalization in the first place after having been hospitalized, working with children and adolescents. So it was just a great opportunity for me to start learning really about what's, what are the best ways to engage young people and support their growth and heal their trauma or support their healing of their trauma. And I just hold it as a very just important part in, in, in my development. You and I have similar backgrounds in terms of starting out really young or like early on, 
like the first jobs that we had were in Parks and Rec because I like started my first summer job was like a camp counselor. And just over time, right, like throughout college, I, oft, I always was like a tutorer or edu- youth education person. So I was always interacting with younger folks. Then I stumbled the Violence Against Women's Movement when I was graduating from the university, there was this position called education coordinator. And I was like, oh yeah, that's totally up, you know, up my alley. I'm all about youth and educating youth and empowering young people. And the role was to develop a youth empowerment curriculum. So I got on board yeah, right, with right, organization right. and I'm writing this female empowerment curriculum and the curriculum that's the companion to this curriculum that I'm developing it side by side with is the men and strength curriculum which is... Yeah, no. Oh, wow, really? Yeah, which is... And then my curriculum that I was working on was called Be Strong because men oh, wow. strength, right? So so talk a little bit about like how you transitioned into the violence and feminist movement and the work that you do with the Men of Strength Clubs and, um, sure. and your work at Men Can Stop Rape. So, yeah, so then, you know, as I said, I, I had been working for the state of Maryland's Department of Health and Mental Hygiene and, um, you know, had started to recognize, uh, you know, that I wanted to take some of those skills. I mean, this this is a suburban county. The tax base is pretty high. And so there's this understanding and belief that there are a lot of resources in the county I grew up in that the young people we had been serving um, were going to be okay, you know, that they had resources and institutions and systems that were looking out for their interests. So I, I felt good at the time that I wanted to start working more with young men of color and I wanted to come and work in the District uh, of Columbia and, and, and really work with young men that I felt like I could really have impact with. And uh, a friend of mine said to me, he goes, well, you know, I, I know these guys who are looking for someone who has experience working with youth who could create some kind of program for young men. And I was like, well, what kind of program? And they're like, oh, they really don't know. They just want someone who can um, help them engage and mobilize young men. And I was like, oh, like you were saying, you know, that was just right up my alley. I was very good at that. I'd done that a lot of different ways. And then he told me that the name of the organization was Men Can Stop Rape. And I was like, what? What is their name? And it just felt to me so extreme, right? I was really so far removed from anything to do with gender equity or, or you know, gender-based violence prevention. I, there, was, there was none of that. Um, and again, I think that's the naivete, and I think it's also the patriarchy and the misogyny that allowed me, even as a black man, to ignore what my family and friends who happened to be female were experiencing every day. Even as a black man, I was just unaware of what it is that women of color go through. Um, even historically, I, 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 would, I knew certain things, but didn't apply it to you know, my family members, friends, uh, everyday lives. So I met with the, 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 co- the co-founders of the organization. They told me what they wanted, and it's basically, Neil, we have uh, a blank slate. You know, we've got these three one-hour workshops, kind of all we have to work with the boys, and they want more, and our funders are asking us for sustainability, and they want to see behavioral change. And that was just really attractive to me. And so I got to come and um, join Men Can Stop Rape and start to get two things. The opportunity, one, to work with the population that I wanted to work with uh, within the DCPS, public schools, charter schools, youth-serving institutions, and create something from scratch that didn't exist to serve these young people. 
And at the same time, I was also beginning my education about feminist theory, feminist thought, feminist activism, gender-based violence, masculinity, gender, gender fluidity. Um, so the, the, the matching of that um, became really exciting. And so, you know, Men Can Stop Rape has now celebrating our, in our 21st year, um, just celebrated our 20th anniversary last year. Uh, started working in three areas, which we continue to work in today. Um, we do public education campaigns that raise the awareness for men in society that men should see rape as not just a women's issue, but as something connected to what we as men need to do um, to identify as ourselves. We need to do it as central to how we define ourselves as men, that every day men need to be actively working to prevent environments where sexual assault, domestic violence, sexual harassment, abusing women or children, girls, um, is unacceptable, and that we are actively creating spaces where it is not tolerated and it is at all times made accountable. Um, the second area that we do that in is trainings for professionals. Um, when we started in 1997, there were very few groups that were talking about healthy masculinity, talking about engaging boys around masculinity. There were very few groups in the country that were doing it. And Having worked at the Boys and Girls Club and Big Brothers and Big Sisters and Boy Scouts, all of those youth-serving institutions are phenomenal and do great work with our young people. The difference is they have no gender analysis. Some of them now are starting to get more and more and be more inclusive, more inclusive. But 20 years ago, they weren't doing it, right? They were just not – it just was not in the, society, in the social norm. The final place that we do our work where we kind of prove all of the work that we, all the theory, all the content that our colleagues are, are creating and that we ourselves are contributing to is in our Men of Strength Club and now in our Women Inspiring Strength and Empowerment Program for Girls. And these are weekly programs. Uh, this program year, we're in about 15 states across the country, uh, close to 150 locations, middle school and high school. Um, where young men, young women go through a curriculum that we designed and was evaluated by the CDC uh, to start to unpack these stereotypical, what we call dominant stories of what boys and girls are supposed to be. And once they start to see that, that, that lie, that setup, that, that, that social construction that is manipulative, we ask them to create what we call a counter story. And that's more authentic to who they believe they are and that they feel supported by their peers because their peers are on the same journey. And so the Most Club and the Wise Club are the two, um, I think, things in terms of our work with youth that not only do they get this own transformational experience in the club, but we then ask them to create community strength projects for their peers who aren't members of the club so that they themselves can also be leaders and messengers for their peer groups uh, about what healthy masculinity is, what it is to be a woman that is beyond just your physical looks or who you marry, but that there's a much broader identity for individuals. So um, all of that, again, just kind of has been this very, in some ways, very linear line uh, of my work with young people and serving them in, in different ways. Hmm. Thanks for sharing that 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 history and the, uh, and also the key components of of the work that you've been doing. I, I'm curious, like as a mother who's raising a black son and daughter, like who I care about and want to be, right? Men of strength and wise women. What are some lessons or some tips or some things that you're noticing or learning from your experience in both of those programs as a parent? Like, what are those skills that are transferable to like how we raise our children in the home? Well, I, you know, I think that. 
in school or in our home, um, you know, communication um, is so key to preparing them to start their journey of learning uh, for the rest of their life. And so as an example, you know, uh, the children's mother and I, we never talked baby talk to our children. Right? Me neither. Even when they were. People, I thought I was weird because I, I did it. <laughs> no, I, I, one, I think it was, you know, there's, there was, there's enough research out there and, um, you know, the children's mother is a social worker and that was her area of study. But even outside of that, my work with young people and I think the field of research and science in terms of early childhood development or maternal health, we're finding out so many things about, you know, infants' ability to comprehend. And so, you know, our children, we had sign, we used sign language with them when, before they could speak. And it was amazing to see them all know how to sign language, whether they were hungry, had to go to the bathroom. Um, before they could speak. So it's the same reason why they talk about children's ability to learn languages when they're younger. The younger they are, the easier it is for them to do it. Um, So we just took that understanding, you know, why I would read to for a father, okay, you're not growing a child inside of our body, but to be able to read a story to the child while it's still in the mother's womb so that it's getting used to the pattern and the tone of your voice I experienced that reading to my children when they were in their mother's womb and when they came out at a certain point when they were more developed I would read this I would be rereading stories that they had read when they were in their womb and they each one of them all three of my children had a very unique and specific reaction to recognizing the story that I was reading to them so that just gave us the momentum to know the same thing that Language is important. Communication is important. And it's not only for us to be able to say, oh, look how smart our children is, but it's for them to be able to defend themselves. We want them to be able to tell us and use the appropriate words. You know, my, my son is, is six. He knows the word penis and vagina and can talk about them in very appropriate ways. God forbid anything was to ever happen to any of my children, but we want to make sure that they know how to use the right words and communicate properly so that they're not misled. So I think the, the goal for us was just as parents, we were clear that we were preparing our children to leave us and be able to make sound decisions when they leave us based on critical thinking skills. And those critical thinking skills get shaped by gaining social-emotional intelligence, right? So how they learn compassion, sympathy, empathy, anger, frustration. They have to know that about themselves, be able to detect those things for themselves. And then the other piece that we know is important for all people, uh, whether you're children or adults, but the three things that shape personality are nature, nurture, and environment. And so I think for us, not speaking baby talk was just another one of the strategies, tools, and best practices of preparing our children for a world of sustainability or autonomy of their own. That was really validating, I will say. Um, you know, Good. you know how they say there's no parenting manual. There, there actually is lots of research and data that like, right, right. like, even myself as someone who, you know, professes to be in an, a lifelong learner, you know, I haven't read a lot of that stuff, but for some reason I've just made choices, right? That 
I didn't do baby talk and people thought that I was so weird because I would talk to my newborn in the same tone that I'm talking right now. I'd be like, hello, how's your day? You know, and and at the same time, my son referred to his male genitalia as a penis and testicles. You know, we talked about it in that way when he was learning how to potty train. Right. And so he would go to preschool um, and, you know, he would say that and people would be like offended that he said the word, you know, and I'm like, well, that's what it is. Like, that's what he's going to call it because that is like, Don't refer to it as something else. And I did that from my work in gender-based violence and like child sexual abuse. Like it's because if we make it a taboo subject, right? If we make it icky to talk about or a bad thing or something that's disgraceful, then if something does happen, God forbid, then then your child is too ashamed to even tell you because that part of their body has become like taboo to talk about. That's the blessing I think of, as you said, you know, I've worked with children who are incest survivors. I've worked with children who have been sexually assaulted and abused and, you know, being around the people who provide treatment and healing and service to them gave me a great education as to why you would make the choices that you would make as a parent to inform your child and tell and keep and, and give them the truth. So, I mean, I, yeah, I, I think it's right. Like there's a lot of research out there and, I got to get it on the job, as it were. So, I mean, I agree with you. I just think it's so important. Thanks for sharing that. Those strategies, because some people aren't going to, you know, I'm not going to pick up that research report and read it, but maybe I'll listen to it on a podcast from some incredible person. Exactly right. So I know we (laughs) talked a lot. I mean, I talk sometimes often more. I I talk more often from um, my parenting of my biological son, but I don't want to exclude, like, my relationship with my stepdaughter and also want to, invite in you to talk about any of the work that you're doing with young girls in the work that you do and also how that also shows up in your parents' relationship with your daughters. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, the blessing is the blessing is the gift and the curse. I, I have insights right now. My oldest daughter is about to turn 13 um, in three weeks. And so I will officially have my first teenager. Yeah, <laughs> she's, she's doing a magnificent job. And, you know, I, I guess I would say this as I start to talk about um, my children and, and, and how it relates to the work I do with other young people as well. It was only until I came into the field of gender-based violence that I had only worked, you know, for a time just working with boys. I had always worked with boys and girls. And what I know is important for my daughters is that for whatever relationship they choose to get into in their life, that relationship is going to be a reflection of what they've learned from their mother and I, nature, nurture, environment. And so I think it's really important as a father of a now soon-to-be 13-year-old, I get developmentally why some mornings I can come downstairs and she wants to be cuddled and she wants to sit next to me and still watch a cartoon that she used to watch when she was much younger. And there's some mornings when I say, good morning, and she bites my head off. Oh, my God, don't talk to me. Now, That's what 13-year-old adolescent girls and boys do. They are starting to distance themselves from their families as they start to learn more about themselves, and their peer groups become more important to them. Now, if I didn't do this work, I may be offended. I may be hurt. I may be angry that my adolescent daughter is doing what the adolescent brain is supposed to be doing, which is starting to explore her world and define her space in it. So when I work with other young people's daughters, I'm very clear that what I want to role model for them is the ability to have 
appropriate adult relationships, uh, intergenerational relationships, where adult men can role model the type of healthy masculinity that is really about uh, the three areas that we said, nature, nurture, environment. And so with all of my children and all of the young women that we work with, we want to be examples, and particularly as black men, we want to be examples of how we follow our female, our female facilitators who run our wise clubs, how we follow their leadership, how we role model respecting their, their, their guidance, their intellect, their expertise, how we show collaboration amongst one another. And I think that's an important thing for our girls to see women who are able to work with men and it not be about a romantic relationship. It'd be a, it's about accomplishing a task or a goal. And unfortunately, a lot of our girls learn, learn to interact with men through a sexuality. So if they don't have men in their life, the way that they want to communicate with young men or men is through their through a flirtation, right? They've not learned their own presence, their own dignity. So they tend to talk to adult men or young men through this flirtation thing. And we think it's just really important that girls are allowed to be girls and be safe enough to not have to use what we think are stereotypical kinds of characteristics to define themselves or to be authorized in a space. And I think that that's the same way that I am with my own children. I want them to know um, no one will love them more than I, so that you will not be manipulated, tricked, or seduced because someone buys you a bouquet of flowers or a hot dog doesn't mean that they love you because you've seen what real love is, you've experienced it, you've been connected to it, you know how it feels. And I think it's the same thing that we want, whether it be my own children or students we work with in the community. How, I think it was Maya Angelou who said, you know, people don't remember what you do for them, they'll remember how you make them feel, something like that. And I think that's what's really important to us because we so emphasize the social and emotional intelligence that we want our members to be able to connect, like that made me feel good or that made me feel sad. Uh, because if they ever were in a situation where they need to communicate something it was really important, they would be able to have the skills to help them connect to not just the memory of something that happened, but the feeling associated with that memory. And that could be anything from getting to college to, um, you know, someone bullying you in the hallway. Thank you. That's really helpful about the social emotional learning. And also you speaking about your relationship with your daughters, showing them what love really looks like. And a month ago, you and I we're both at the Black Women's Blueprint Words of Fire conference, and you were the keynote, and you spoke in reference to the crisis that was publicized in D.C. around missing Black girls. And um, I heard another element around, like, there are girls who are missing, who are being abducted and taken, and, and then there are also girls who are runaways. And this is not only what you said, right? This is also what's like being named in articles. Right? Like, there are also runaway girls. Um, and so the piece that you named that I want to unpack is around what are black men really doing in the homes that are leading girls to run away? Basically, that's what you said, right? Like, that, wh like what is happening yeah, in the yeah. home, right? That's yeah. leading girls to run away. And so I hear you talk about what yeah. you are doing, particularly in your home, to help your yeah. daughters to see what love is, that they don't have to run away. Like, so underneath that, to me, I had multiple things, right? As a, as a survivor myself, I think about like black men in the home don't necessarily have to be like your father, right? Just like black men in families, right. 
Correct. What are they doing to cause harm to make girls run away? And also that could be child sexual abuse or it could be physical violence or, you know, or right. it could also be witnessing domestic violence. So I was just like, there was so much going through my head when you said that. And I was just like, wow, what are they doing or not doing that are make black girls run away? So I wanted to invite you to speak a little bit more about that. Well, I, you know, I, thank you for that. I mean, you know, what, what, again, unfortunately, and for me, fortunately, you know, I'm not a survivor. The only thing I'm a survivor of is the ongoing experience of white supremacy in a society that doesn't value black men, women, children. What I know is in this country for 500 years, black children are vulnerable to a system of white supremacy that does not value them. And what I know is that nature-nurture environment, again, black men who have access and are in the lives of children and adolescents, who aren't themselves routinely holding themselves accountable and responsible for those children's safety at all times, at all times, in my opinion, are doing our community a disservice. Our children are already being inundated by the media, negative depictions of them, by random violence random white supremacist violence, whether it be gendered in nature, whether it be around uh, identity or orientation. And so I have the most respect for all adults who prioritize creating environments where young people are safe. And if you are creating an environment where young people aren't safe, you're doing harm to them. And that harm ultimately spills outside of that home into the larger community, but most importantly, it impacts that child for their life. And so I just think it's a really important thing for black men to be mindful of how and what space we take up in our home, how we use our authority, how we provide, how we show collaboration, how we give love, how we receive love, how we listen, how we active listen. I mean, this is work, right? To be a parent, is work. And so the whole line of anyone can make a baby, it takes an adult or a man or a woman to raise a child, you know as a parent, that's real. And I think if our community is going to overcome some of the, some of the challenges that we are experiencing um, and have, have historically experienced, it's going to be through our children's ability to be prepared for a global community. And the reason these girls are, are, many of these girls and boys are fleeing and running from homes is that they're being abused and neglected. They're not being, uh, and that can be everything from not eating regularly to being responsible for caring for small children to not getting enough uh, expectations around school. This is not just respectability politics. This is about people's needs not being met. And so they go looking for someone, someplace, some uh, entity to have their needs met. And so I think that we as black men uh, must always be accountable uh, to black girls and women and their safety and to make sure that we're not just surviving, but that we as a community get to a place where we're thriving, that the expectation is at all times that a black child is most safe in the presence of black adults. And until we're, until we're confident about that, I think I'm just going to keep speaking out about the fact that our girls are leaving these, these homes for some reason. And we have to start being more honest about the fact that many of those reasons start with us. It's not about the Ku Klux Klan or neo-Nazis, you know, in the black community up in, in some, you know, adolescent girl's house. But if you've got an uncle, and I'm an uncle, if you've got a brother, and I'm a brother, or a father, or a neighbor, and I'm all those things, crossing boundaries and harming children 
then that individual needs to be rooted out of the community and held accountable. And the rest of us as a community need to make sure that those kinds of things uh, don't happen moving forward. And so I just uh, I just take that very seriously, is that we create spaces and environments and families and homes where black children are not being vulnerable to the violence that some black men are perpetrating against them. Mm, thank you so much, especially like we're on the brink of Father's Day and it's going to be a time to celebrate fathers. There are fathers and there are men who are creating harm and there are also a lot who aren't, right? And and so this Father's Day wanting to celebrate the ones who are really doing what you're recommending and, and naming needs to be done to support Black children to really thrive and to be loved and to be whole and to feel safe. Um, and, you know, yeah, that just brings up so much in terms of like the both and, right? So there's the piece of me that wants to hold Black men accountable and also want to protect from the ways that white supremacy and the histories of slavery and enslavement, right, have actually also had such harmful impacts on the state of Black men today, right? So, like, right, there is no Ku Klux Klan today, but, like, what is the residual kind of trauma Mm -hmm. um, and intergenerational trauma that's happened in terms of communities? And so I know some of the other work that you've been doing in universities is talking about the connection between racism and rape. And so I feel like some of that historical kind of knowing that you would share, I want to invite you to share some of that for me. Because what's happening for me right now is like, yes, and, and it's not yes, but, right? Because it's not, but means like right. I'm making an excuse or justification for it, which I am not, right? Um, it's like, right. this yes, and like, yes, that is so true. And like, what are some of the harmful things that have happened um, to black male identified folks and also to black women that we often don't get to talk about in regards to like rape and slavery or rape and racism. Um, and like how that actually impacts our communities today. It's all woven together for me and, and I would love for you to help me make those connections more visible. Well, I think it's right, right? I mean, it's, it's the and again, because I think there is, even now, I am conditioning my children will tell you uh, my daughters particularly know if you're ever in trouble, don't go to the police. If you find yourself in trouble, find a black mommy first. If daddy or mommy are not around, find a black mommy first, right? I'm just taking a chance that a, long, a young black girl in need could find a, a, a black woman who would help them before I could trust them going to the police. If you can't find a black mommy, go to the fire department. Now, I'm clear that my white friends do not speak to their children about these things in that way. And yet I know what you said about um, the need for, you know, the overcriminalization uh, in this field. And we're going to lock them up, restraining orders. You know, you can't lock up everybody who you think has done something. We've got more people locked up in this country than any other place on the planet, more than Russia, more than China. And when they pass these laws, whether it be three strikes or out, whether it be, you know, um, uh, mandatory minimums, you name it, the people who are most consequent of that are black men, black boys and men. And yet when you talk to the women's movement or the white side of the women's movement, They have, I believe, chosen to say it's not a much, it's not that much of a priority to us. 
And I do believe there have been some black women who've said, yes, we are, we are experiencing so much violence from black men that we think it is necessary as well for black men to be held accountable through incarceration. I think that's a challenge because it only exacerbates or only lifts up the exact, you know, institutions and systems that compromise everyone's safety and small victories uh, in legislation end up having wholesale negative impacts on communities. I was watching a documentary and one of the, one of the members of the rap group dead Prez, was talking about, you know, my mom did 15 years of a 20 year bid. It was fed time. And he said, you know, at that point, when I realized that that's what's happening, this is back in the uh, early 90s. He's like, I realized that's what's happening. They're locking up moms. They're taking dads and just locking up whole you know, moms and dads. He's like, we went through the hood like, what's good? We raised ourselves. Well, that was an intentional impact of legislation to get tough on crime. So I'm always afraid when we start talking about getting tough on crime as it relates to like sexual assault or domestic violence, the people who are going to be impacted first are going to be black boys and men. And therefore, black families are going to be compromised by not having all of the resources that they need to take care of themselves nowadays. And I, I think that it gets so complicated as to, you know, these street harassment laws that people want. And then you see a group puts out a video about street harassment, and the only place they showed it was in brown-skinned communities. They didn't think about going to any of the fraternities or any of the college campuses. They went to the they went to black parts of town, and you saw things that hmm, it's on a continuum as to are, are you sure that wasn't just someone waving hello to one of their neighbors? I mean, you're calling that looks like someone's just saying hi to one of their neighbors. How, how is that street harassment here in Washington D.C.? We had a young man on Capitol Hill held the door for a woman leaving an ATM. Uh, he held the, he was leaving on an ATM. And uh, he held the door for her to come in. And he and his friend stood outside of the door, to like to the side of the door after they held it for her, deciding where they were going to go next. She called the police, said she felt threatened. This is the middle of the day. This is the middle of the day. And here in D.C., there's tourists all over the place looking at the Capitol building and the White House and all this. She called the police, and they came and arrested the young man, saying that he, that they, that they, that he was a threat to her. So, again, you start putting laws around incarceration – uh, and you say it's an expression of supporting survivors or holding men who choose to be violent accountable. The ones who are going to be experiencing that harm first are going to be uh, black boys and men. And all you need to do is read Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow, to know that. And now read Beth Ritchie's book, and you'll know that, that those numbers are starting to increase for black girls and women. Yeah, man, the impacts of our policies and the the unintended consequences, the impacts on black men and also on black women, right? Like when I think about, you know, folks like Marissa Alexander, where actually the laws right. about protecting victims of domestic violence right. actually having such a negative right. impact on domestic violence victims of color. And I think about like the young 14-year-old, 15-year-old girl, Brescia Meadows, like the laws around domestic violence and like being able to stand up or defend yourself, you know, actually 
lead to black girls, black women being actually incarcerated for domestic violence when they are actually themselves the victims. So like there is a way that actually it just impacts. But I think that has a lot to do with who's crafting the laws to have the privilege of believing that the criminal justice system is meant to protect and serve. And for some people, it wasn't intended for us. I mean, I think that's a great point. So when you get to who is making these laws and what's the purpose of these laws and then who they affect, you're going to go back to white supremacy again. I mean, it just that's where it is so pervasive that it's not like we're having national debates as to what law we should make. These laws are already written, and once they get the right person in the right office, they they just sign off on them and they unfold. And you've got a militarized police department all across this country locking up black women and girls. I mean, Sandra Bland. I mean, you know, it's, it is, again, a full-scale assault on the black community. But I, I think I've gotten to a place in my life where I just feel a responsibility for speaking at least what I've experienced in that black people are not second in my life. They're first. And I think our movement attempts to water us down and separate us from that reality. It's like if you're against the war, you're against the troops. No, no, no. Just because I love black people doesn't mean that I want something bad to happen to anybody else. I'm just clear that my priorities for my children is that they're going to show up in the world as black. And I know what is happening to black children all over this country and the world. And so my energy, my activism, my advocacy is for them first. That 100% resonates for me. And that's why Parenting for Liberation exists. Not because I don't believe in all the other work that I've done over my life in ending gender-based violence, but because I could do all that work in communities and schools to prevent, to raise awareness about gender-based violence, and still I could raise my children who to go out into a world that does not see them as whole, a world that will penalize and punish them for being bold, brilliant, bright, shining lights. And so I had to pivot and shift my work to prioritize the lives of Black children and to amplify the complexities of raising Black children and being a Black parent who wants a world, right? So I want the both and. I want to create liberation in the world Mm -hmm. so that the world does not harm my children, who I'm also trying to cultivate liberation within them, right? For them to see their own light, to cultivate their light, to nurture it, to see their full humanity, and so that I parent from that place and that when they right. exit my front door and go into the world, that that world is ready for them That's and right. can accept them um, That's right. and can hold that. And so it's a both and for me. And, and just because I'm doing it for my kids is not me. Like your kids can also exist in that world. That, that is what the world already right. looks like for some people's kids. Right. Correct. I mean, I think it's right. I mean, I, you know, years ago, there was a conversation I was having with people about spanking and should you spank? And, um, you know, my dad never laid a hand on me. My mother, on the other hand, she got into all three of us at some different time. My sister, not so much, because, you know, she was two little bad boys running around the house. So never was it a beating, right? I, I would say to you, I always know that we got spankings, a little swat here and there, get out the house, boys, stop doing this, whatever it was. And, you know, we were talking about spanking years later, just years later, about, you know, what the impact of it is, you know, because I would say to you, 
that when my children were very small, you know, using my index finger across their wrist to tell them not to put a fork inside of an electrical outlet is not traumatizing. You can only communicate so much to a two-year-old that's dangerous. And they get stubborn and want to do their thing, and then you take the fork away and you give your little index finger on their wrist and say, no, that's dangerous. And that probably resolved it, at least for my kids it did. But when we start talking about spanking or beating or even the joke, you know, there's that, there's that, there's that, um, in comedy, you'll hear black comics talk about when they were kids, you know, the little white kids are going off in the mall, they're climbing all over the place and they're doing all this. And the mother's just, I just don't know what to do with them. And the little black kids will go over and confront the white kids and say, Hey man, calm down. You're about to get me in trouble kind of thing. Like, you know, you're acting so bad that my mom's going to spank me when I go home just to let me know that I can't do what you're doing in here. Right. And I've heard that joke since Richard Pryor and, and beyond. But what we realized as we, as we were having these conversations is that the little white boy that's climbing all up the, all up the, the, the shelves and knocking stuff and rolling down on the floor and, and his mother's just either nowadays, they just ignore it and let it go. They don't even feel overwhelmed by it. That little boy or that little girl is being told through their parents' non-action to their behavior that the world is for you. You do whatever you want in the world. No one is going to prevent you from being white. Climb up the shelves, knock things off, cause a scene, act a fool. No one will prevent you from being white. Now, if our children did that, we ourselves as a community would be hardest on them. Because what I used to say to people, and I still think this is accurate, we spanked our children, my parents' generation, because they knew we're going to spank you here at home so you don't get shot and killed or lynched outside of this home. So they grew up during a time where there was, you know, white-only colored, colored uh, water fountains, and, and they, they knew that culture. So there was a very strong sense of, if you think about Emmett Till, from Chicago didn't realize how serious that culture was. But children in that community knew, don't step out of line because it could cost you your life. And I think that's where the spankings and the respectability politics came from because it was about an immediate safety. Whereas nowadays, I'm very clear with my children and sometimes, you know, Trina, I have to sit on my hands and, and look the other way because I don't want to traumatize my children, like you were saying, to not think that the world is for them and that I don't want to restrict their movement or thinking or exploration. That's what, children, that's, that's what children's work is. Their play is their experimentation. So they're supposed to see what happens. I want you to explore the world so you have the confidence in your ability to learn, the confidence in your ability to lead, the confidence in your ability to disengage, like, that's what white children are receiving, nature-nurture environment. The nurture of not being told no, the nurture of not being spanked when you do something that is about respectability politics. You go to a fancy restaurant, you see white kids in there in T-shirt and shorts. They're allowed to be white. And whatever and however it shows up in white culture is embraced as their autonomy and authority to be themselves. And like you, I want, and I don't want that to be at the expense of someone else's freedom, but our ancestors were slaves. And therefore I feel responsible for maintaining our freedom, particularly as there are entities looking to restrict our freedom. 
and our children will be responsible for that responsibility as well. But the only way that they can do it in today's world is to be empowered enough to stand up and speak truth to power, stand up and be leaders in moments, um, and know who they are, and know who they are as black children in this world. Wow, that's so powerful and helpful because I hear like the spirit of the rod spoils a child. I hear the, if you don't discipline him now, law enforcement will discipline him. If you don't get him in check now, you know, this, this entity or this entity, right? Something that's more dangerous and threatening will get him in check, right? And so I hear that. And I've often been like, me spanking him or getting him in check still won't necessarily prevent, right? Like, he's a good kid, right? You could be, you know, that that none of that really actually protects you from white supremacy. And so instead of trying to, like, protect that out or beat that out or discipline that out, it's actually interesting to hear you say, that white, you know, white children, that their parents are basically saying, like, there's nothing that's going to prevent you from being white, which to me means, translates, like, I'm not going to let anything prevent you from being free and liberated and just being a kid, right? Like, carefree. Correct. And so, like, I want to cultivate that, too. I want my kid, I mean, ooh, it's going to be hard Correct. to, like, you know, sit there and let my kid, you know, cut up in public. But I think the fact that I see it as cutting up, it's like mm-hmm. it's it it's it it's cultural to see it as cutting up versus like to see it as oh that's just a kid being a kid running free, you know that's what they're well, right. And so that it's yeah. Well, and then you get the balance right because I don't want my children to be rude. Right. I don't want them to be unsafe because we are you know there's reciprocity in relationships whether it be a family relationship or a neighbor relationship or a peer. So hey, it's okay if you want to sit on the floor in this restaurant and you know color but if you're in the way of the waitress or if you're interrupting somebody else's meal then you can't do that that's not fair to them so that's just rude we're not going to do that right that's a different thing Mm -hmm. than than when your kid wants to run up and down the aisle uh playing a game in the grocery store and you hear black fathers or mothers shouting at them and telling them get your room here run around here like you're crazy because what we want other people to know is we have control of our kids versus saying, yeah, kids are just being kids. They're all right. And I think it's even good to role model. I found myself at times trying to role model verbally what it is that my children may be doing that I probably as a child couldn't have gotten away with. So to say, Oh, buddy, you're having a good time. You like doing that. All right. Just be careful. Right. We don't want to break anything. To give the, to role model the verbal permission of, yes, you can go ahead and play and be a child, but my limit or my expectation is you don't hurt yourself or get in the way or break anything so that parents can start to see that's okay, man. That's not a, that, that, don't punch your kid in the chest to make him behave. That's not making him a man. It's not making him going to behave. And as you said, Trina, it's not going to make him safe. The thing that will make them safe, unfortunately, or what, what, we, what we fantasize is knowing how to, you know, this sounds, unfortunately, it's a, it's a, maybe it's a war metaphor, but I believe it. You know, living in a system of white supremacy, we're behind enemy lines. So if, if the institutions or systems want to restrict you, the police want to stop you, 
in that moment, you're behind enemy lines. So it's kind of name, rank, and serial number to get away from that situation as safely as you can. Now, this is no different than we teach the boys that we work with or the girls. Running your mouth, being aggressive, you're going to lose. Now, it shouldn't be that way, and we're all working towards a time where it's not that way. But right now, it's that way. So let's be wise and not play into a system that is trying to make you vulnerable to its authority. When stopped by the police, this is how you should behave. And we walk them through. We practice with them. If you're in a car, this is how you should do it. If you're walking down the street, this is how you should do it. And how these are the rules and the, and, and the rights you have. And by the way, just because you know the rules and you have rights, you're still behind enemy lines. So it's not to make them paranoid, but to really empower them with recognizing following these things feels somewhat like risk reduction for women, and yet we would be doing our young people a disservice if we did not say to them, hey, girls, you really should. I saw a young lady last night. I was walking. I was driving home. And she's in the neighborhood. She was just in her neighborhood between residential buildings. But she's got her headphones on. Her hood was up. It was starting to get dark. And she's walking through the alley, which she probably does, you know, twice a day, multiple times a day, all the time. And my first thought was, well, she does it all the time, but it's probably not the safest thing to do, just from the headphones alone. Now, I don't think that most young people, right, they don't think they're ever going to die, so they don't think about those kinds of things in the same way we as older people do. But I think it's important that we strike the balance of risk reduction is not going to keep you safe. Beating it out of kids, beating you know behaviors out of kids is not going to make you safe. And yet there are things about either the philosophy of why we were going to spank you at home versus, you know, not disciplining you at home and why we don't want you to go out late at night to the part of town with, you know, a lot of jewelry on kind of thing. Like there's some common sense things that we also as parents have to try to teach our children to say, don't drink and then get in the car, right? Shooting heroin is not a good thing. Like there's certain things that I think some parents feel like I don't want to be my children's friend, and I tell them that all the time. I'm not interested in being their friend. I don't even care if they like me. That's not my job as their father, right? And I think that your mother doesn't like when I say that or when I say I'm raising these children to leave us. My job, I don't own them. My job is to care for them until they are able to care for themselves. Now, as a parent, we know we're going to love them for the rest of our lives. But I would never want my children to think that my responsibility or my goal for them was to be their friend. When that comes later in life, if I'm blessed, I look forward to it. But right now, it's not my target. What I hear you looping back to is what you said in the beginning when I asked you what are some tips or strategies that you learned in your work about how you parent in your home, and you said communication is key. And what I'm hearing you describe around some of the questions and decisions around discipline and not being their friends um, and about like saying, hey, there's some common sense things that we can teach that's not about protection, but it's just common sense things that we can do with our children, I think the difference is communicating the why behind mm-hmm. the choices mm-hmm. or the decisions, right? Like 
it's not a good idea, child, for you to do X, Y, and Z because these are the things that I'm trying to protect you from. Correct. And being honest with them. I think sometimes, you know, when I was growing up, it's just like, why? You couldn't ask why. There was no like, I said so. because I said so, because I'm the mama, <laughs> yeah. I'm the adult. And that's like, that was the reason. And I think right. for our children to start to make those decisions on their own when they become older, um, so that they can make wise choices, they have to know like the reasoning that we're making those decisions so that when they come with that same choice and we're not around, that they actually make the right choice and not be like, well, my mom said to do this 10 years ago, but she never explained why. So I'm going to do it the way that I want, <laughs> you know, um, so, that, so that they can make good choices based on logic and reasoning and our critical thinking and that we have to actually provide that for them. Um, and sometimes parents don't provide that and just, you know, because I said so. And that that actually limits their ability to make those choices later on. And so I think communication is key to some of the parenting choices that we're making and being honest and accountable. Um, you also talked about that earlier as well, like being accountable to our children. I think I often tell my son, like, oh, I don't know. And that is okay for me to say, I don't know. Let's think about that. Right. I don't know. Let's think That's about right. it together. Or, oh, I thought that that was it. And I think, you know, you might be right. I might have made the wrong choice or that might not have been the best way to react. Like, you're right. And that it's okay. Well, that's, that's, it's so empowering to be able to tell your children, you know, there's moments where I've said, we were talking early in the conversation where I've been able to say to my children, I said, you guys, you know what? You know, last week and I said, daddy, I don't think daddy was as patient as he could have been. And, and I promise I'm going to do better. I, I just feel like, I think that honesty for the children and role modeling for them, a willingness to be vulnerable or when, you know, my son who will be, daddy, what's this? What's that? I was like, buddy, I don't know. Let's look it up when we get home. Right. Let's look it up on the, let's look it up on the internet when we get home. I'm not really sure. As you're saying. It's okay for us not to be the know-all, end-all, be-all, but then to give them the skills to say, oh, right, I can look up on the internet. So if I'm ever in a situation where I need to make a decision or I need some information, don't just speculate. Let's just look it up. And I think that, that, again, is different as the generations are changing within our community around, um, you know, parenting and, you know, I still, I, I will tell you, there's still moments where I finally have to say to them, why, daddy? I was like, because I said so. Because after you've given the explanation and the debate and the back, back and forth, there are moments where, you know what, I am going to be the adult. And I think some parents restrict the use of their authority because they are not consistent enough with it. So that in the moment where they have to use authority, they feel like they're being mean and again, and, you know, my job is not to be liked. It's to make sure that my children are safe and loved and nurtured and provided for. And so it does require me to role model uh, vulnerability or, or failure or improvement or growth because I want them to be able to be self-reflective as well. Um, and, and I just think that's really important. I think you said that really well. Yeah, I have totally had to learn that piece around not wanting to be mean and wanting to be loved and, and, you know, withholding my authority because not wanting to be the mean one or the bad guy in the, in the decision-making. And I realized like, you know, it is what it is. You might not like me right now (laughs) and I'm going to explain the why. And then that's it. You know, like you can ask me all the questions and sometimes, yeah, like, Oh, the great debate is over. Right. That's right. You're going to bed now because you're going to wake up in the morning. You're going to be tired, but I'm not going to be tired. Yes, you are. Okay. You know what? Just go to bed. Yeah. And then in the moment, and then in the moment where you try, and this is where you know, think youth workers or parents don't realize that explaining it to them is good. But if 
you know, because we've been communicating with our children the way that we've talked about, you know, my children are smart and they're very verbal. Mm -hmm. And so they can get you into a power struggle, not only with why, but with logic response. Well, I'm not finished yet. And I would like, and I think I should have the right to finish this chapter before I go to bed. I said, it's true, Zoe. But if you don't go to sleep now, in the morning time, you're going to be very tired, and then you're going to get very upset. And when you get very upset, what happens? I start to cry. So when you start to cry, what happens? Isaiah teases me. So to walk them through your decision, I think, is fine. And if that child is like my middle daughter, she's an old, wise soul. She's like, you're right. I'll read it in the morning. Excellent. That's a good idea. Let's do that. Let's read it in the morning. Now, my son, he's not having it. Right. And so I think it's it, it's just really important that our responsibility to be a consistent authority, to, to be an authority only when you're mad is abusive. So the, the communication, the, the practice of communicating, the practice of thinking, and then the consistency of parenting that requires me to be as responsible and accountable as I'm asking them to be is for me a joy and a blessing. And I'm thankful that doing this work here at Men Can Stop Rape has taught me more about how to try to empower girls as they become young women and also how to serve boys as they become young men and to try to do the same thing with my own children. You know, hopefully it's for us, for those of us who've chosen an activist lifestyle, Trina, hopefully it's, it, it's some of the karma that'll come back to us that our children will gain some of the insights of the work we do with other people's children. Oh, yes. From your mouth to God's ears, I hope that is the karma that I receive. I do want to thank you for this time. I feel like I could talk to you forever about your work, your parenting. I probably want to get you back on again later because I want to hear more stories about, about your kids. I learn the most through stories, and I hear some of the same stories that you have with your children my stepdaughter's 13 and my son is eight. So I feel like our kids are also around the same age, like entering right. yes. yes. teenager yes. zone. And, yes. Um, yes. and your son sounds like my son when he was six and eight going on 18, the like great debater who, yeah, sounds very familiar. <laughs> um, well, I look forward to it. And, and again, it's been a great honor for me. I think, you know, anytime we're prioritizing parenting and trying to give parents Sure. Nowadays, there are a lot of there are a lot of manuals and books, but what I know is that those are guidelines. Human behavior is really hard to quantify and capture in a book. So that there's a space where people are going to be able to listen and hear other parents talk about our struggles and our successes, our fears and our our, our joys. Um, and it's a great credit to you and your leadership on this. So we're we're, we're just so pleased and and so honored that you let us participate and support this project. Thank you so much.